Okay, <clears throat> I finished my donut, so I guess that means it's uh, time to get started. Uh, be sure to say hi to some of our college students that are back home now uh, on spring break. We'll welcome them, um, encourage them to remain sober all week, and uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, we've also, we've got some people out of town as well, so I think, it, I think this is probably normal this time of year, is that correct? Okay, that's kind of what I figured. So, plus the time change, everybody remembered? Did anybody get surprised? Yeah, so, yeah, it was kind of, I don't know, it was a late night last night, I don't know why I stayed up so late. Um, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer, and then um, I want to share with you just, a, I want to chat just a little bit about fasting. I've had a lot of questions this week after Wednesday, and they were, they were all excellent questions, really good questions about fasting, because Jesus uh, doesn't say if you fast, he says when you fast. So Jesus fully expects that his disciples are going to fast at some point uh, or time. Now, now keep in mind, uh, Jesus has fulfilled all the law, correct? So it's not required that you fast. So if you choose not to fast, don't feel guilty or sinful or anything like that. But it is a very good spiritual practice. And so before we uh, get into our regular study for today, I want to spend about five minutes explaining uh, what that is and why. But before we do that, shall we pray? The Lord be with you. Lord God, Heavenly Father, throughout these 40 days as we keep the fast, inspire our hearts now with true repentance towards you, that hearing your word may we, we may recognize our sin, that we may turn from it and find in your Son the grace and mercy that we truly don't deserve, but that you freely and lavishly bestow upon us. In the midst of our refrain joy, point us ever forward to not only Easter Sunday, but also to the resurrection that awaits. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so uh, the way I want to do this is I'm going to share with you uh, something that was written about eh, nine years ago, maybe. Can you pull it up? Uh, by Dr. Gifford Grobean. Raise your hand if you know Gif. <laughs> so Dr. Grobean, uh, professor at Concordia Theological uh, Seminary in Fort Wayne. Um, I've known him for, boy, before he was a professor, probably 11, maybe almost 12 years um, he graduated uh, Fort Wayne Seminary about the same time as a number of my friends um, that I, uh, uh, you know, Pastor Olman and a few others. Um, and then, you know, he served uh, there as associate or assistant pastor at Emmanuel in South Bend, I think, while he was working on his PhD. What's Emmaus? What did I say? That's what I meant, Emmaus. Um, and, uh, and so now a uh, professor up there, he revamped the doctor, uh, doctor of Ministry program back in 2013, which is actually what prompted me to enroll in it back in 2013. So I'm six years in. I've been all but dissertation now for too long. Don't ask. Um, and uh, he calls me once a month to, um, yeah, anyway. So... <laughs> Uh, can you read that okay? And this is what he had to say um, about, uh, uh, about fasting. I'm going to try and stand here and read it. Here we go. The Christian is invited to and expected to fast. 
Although Christians typically fast on certain days throughout the year, except the Easter season, Lent is an especially appropriate season to practice fasting. I can't do that. I'm going to sit down here and read it to you. You ready? Oh, you can't do that? I'll sit here and read it. There we go. They can hear me. Okay. Fasting is a bodily exercise of self-control and repentance, both themes of the Lenten season. The Christians do not fast just to give something up. Um, you know, so, so that's kind of the common thing is to give something up during Lent. But keep in mind, fasting literally means fasting from food, okay? Uh, fasting is not a punishment or a kind of religious uh, masochism. Instead, we fast for two general reasons. One, to increase the joy of the festive seasons, uh, such as Easter. And two, to train our souls to be self-controlled. So first, fasting enhances the rhythms of life. When you fast during solemn times, the joy of festivity is enhanced. Small servings of potatoes and vegetables during Lent makes the lamb and pies of Easter taste richer and sweeter. By engaging the body in the mood of the season, the experiences of restraint and plenty and of plenty are heightened. Fasting joins your body to what is happening with your spirit. Second, fasting trains your soul, and that isn't a typo. It should not seem odd that bodily exercise ends up training your soul, for your soul is the center and source of your desires. When you intentionally deprive your soul of what it wants, it has to get by without. When you want supper but don't eat it, not only your belly but your soul also learns temperance and resiliency. Fasting trains not only your body but also your self-control. I want to stop there real quick. How many of you are reading our uh, Behold the Man devotions? Okay. If you haven't, get started with it, and they're short, so you can catch up really easily. Who remembers what day one was about? Shplak is oh my. What was it about? Your gut. Yeah, he talks briefly about having a gut feeling, right? Raise your hand if you're familiar with a gut feeling. Yeah, everybody, you know, kind of get the, the gut feeling, Right? Um, and I'm not talking about bad Chinese food or anything like that, but, but you know, the, the, the gut feeling. So he talks about how your, your, your body is literally, I mean, you are one whole person, body, soul, and spirit. Everything is connected in that way. And I think sometimes we lose sense of that uh, and we forget some of that. And without going into some of the explanations of, of where our culture has gone a little bit because of Greek dualism um, and rationalism and some other things, there is a spiritual side to who you are, okay? And so that's what Dr. Grobina is reminding us. Any questions before I read on? Okay, good, good. All right, I'm going to sit back down here. These are comfy chairs. Why is that important? Is that where I'm at? Your desires, uncontrolled, give in to temptation. They lead you into sin. Uncontrolled desires make idols of what your soul wants. Desiring excess food is gluttony. A desiring extravagant clothing or cars or decor is desiring a man or woman outside of marriage is and desiring anything outside of God's order makes you in. So fasting is like working out. It's a spiritual exercise. As jogging or lifting weights conditions your body, fasting conditions your soul. So how should you fast? Good question. Like exercise, start with a routine you can handle. If you've never fasted before, don't try to give up food for a whole day. But on the other hand, make it noticeable. 
Everyone should be able to give up dessert and second helpings, correct? Didn't say you wanted to, but you should be able to do it. For moderate fasting, eat smaller portions at each meal. To step it up a bit, replace two meals each with a small snack. And for the third meal, eat only about half of what you normally would. Can't do it every day? That's fine. Fast on Wednesdays and Fridays, the days Christians traditionally fasted throughout the year. Okay. Now, want to fast in a specific way to address your particular weaknesses and temptations? Chocolate. Think about what tempts you, chocolate, and limit your exposure, chocolate. Does that resonate with some of you? <laughs> if shopping is your weakness, no shopping sprees of comfort purchases during Lent. Too much time wasted on the internet or visiting sites you shouldn't be. Only use it at work or when someone else is with you. If you need encouragement, counsel, or more ideas, you can, believe it or not, talk with your pastor. Fasting makes you more conscious of your desires. Even as you try to control them, they will seem enhanced simply because you're thinking about them. So as you become more aware of temptations and sinful desires, then confess them. Confess them in your prayers. Confess them in preparation for the divine service. Confess them to your pastor, right? And one quick word, um, you know, Pastor Grady and I have chatted a little bit about this. Um, you know, all sins you should confess before who? Your Father who is in heaven, right? Uh, sins you should confess to your neighbor are what? Sins you do against them, right? I'm sorry, okay? And sins that you know and that trouble you in your heart, who does Luther encourage you to go talk to about that? Not the, not the gal that does your nails or the guy, okay? Yeah, so... That's part of what we as pastors are here for. So one of the things this next year uh, that you'll start hearing a little bit more, and we'll even, we even are going to work, I, I didn't talk to you about this yet, Pastor Grady, we're going to publicize some hours during the week, if you need them, that you know that we're available to come in for individual confession absolution. Not a law like fasting, but your pastors are here for that, to help counsel you according to God's Word, Okay. Um, and that's an important thing. Luther talks about it in the small catechism. Um, it's there, and we retain all that, okay? Somebody mentioned to me a couple weeks ago that we should put a confessional booth somewhere in the church, and I thought, well, you know, if I had a comfortable chair and maybe a flat screen and a cup holder, you know, but anyway, so we'll meet in the office. We'll meet you in the coffee shop. We'll meet you wherever you're at, okay? Um, and and that's, that's good, okay? So wherever you're comfortable, you, you let us know. Any questions on that? Pastor Grady, you paying attention to me? Anything you want to add to that? Anything you want to add? So ever since I arrived back in, in December, you know, um, I've kind of listened to him. What well, they didn't tell me this was going on, or they didn't tell me they were having surgery or what, you know, let us know. Okay, not just so we can come and bug you, but keep in mind that one of the main things we do for you as pastors, you probably don't even realize this, and we're actually called to do this. This is part of our ordination vows, to pray for you, to pray for all of you. And so one of the things that I do is I, I literally sit down with the directory and I just simply go through it, train of thought. And so I've prayed for all of you. Some of you that I know stuff that's going on, I might pray about that. Otherwise, I trust the Lord knows and ask Him to watch over you and your family, and that's part of our job as pastors to do that, okay? doesn't make us special or better. That's just part of our job, okay? Good, good? All right, let's finish up.
Oh, we're almost done. Can you scroll back up? So where are we at? Fasting makes you more conscious of your desires. Even as you try to control them, they will seem enhanced simply because you're thinking about them. And as you become more aware of temptations and sinful desires, confess them. Confess them in your prayers. Confess them in preparation for the divine service. Confess them to your pastor. Then receive the absolution of Christ and his life and spirit to encourage and refresh you on your spiritual journey. Now note, Sundays are never fast days. So go ahead and enjoy the good gifts of creation to their fullest on these days. Also, and this is important, expectant or nursing mothers, children, and the ill are never expected to fast from food, but to provide the nourishment their bodies need. Okay, I think that's all he's got, right? Okay, yep, that's it. Okay. All right, any questions or comments on that? I thought Dr. Grobin did a really good job just kind of summarizing uh, fasting and giving you a few kind of helpful tips on that. Um, any questions or comments? Okay. Yeah, don't try and do what Jesus did. You're not Jesus. Don't go 40 days, I mean, without food. You obviously can't do that without water either. Um, but, uh, you know, I've found my fasting has changed. I used to try and give something up, and now I will, I will just skip a meal. It might be breakfast. It might be lunch. The only problem I've had so far during Lent is when I've done that, then I eat other things that I shouldn't eat, you know, so... You know, so I skipped breakfast the other day, and I, I for lunch, I went to Wayne, Wendy's and got a Baconator, and that's not, <laughs> not really helping my waistline, but, you know, my stomach was definitely grumbling by the time, you know, one o'clock, it was a late lunch, too, which that's the worst time, right? They say never go shopping at a grocery store when you're hungry, so uh, anyway, all right, enough of that. Any other comments on fasting before we get into uh, Dr. Marquardt? Nothing? Monty? You don't have any questions? Okay, I believe we are on, where are we at here? We are, I'll go back to the uh, Marquardt's here. It's We Modern, right? Which, which page is that? We Modern Christians. Oh, I just had it open earlier. What page are we on? 16, there it is. Thank you very much. Okay. So uh, just uh, scroll up just a little bit, Matthias, to the paragraph before this one. So we are picking up on the bottom of page 16 if you have the book with you. Otherwise, follow along up on the screen. And if you're a guest with us today, this is the Saving Truth Doctrine for Lay People. Um, uh, and uh, 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 Professor Marquardt started this book and then passed away before he could finish it. And his students took what he had done and then added notes to it. And that's what we have today. There's three volumes. The first one is specifically for lay people. And we're just kind of taking our time with this study, aren't we? So don't throw anything. Here we go. Tradition, tradition. Tradition then can mean many things. Some are good, some are bad, some weighty, some not. Chemnitz, that's the other Martin, distinguishes no fewer than eight classes of tradition in his masterful discussion answering the Roman Catholic Council of Trent. The point is that for what we believe and teach as God's truth, we must have his own warrant in his written word. Okay, so you can kind of write off to the side in your book um, where, where scripture mandates or commands conservatism. Okay, so where scripture mandates uh, or uh, gives to us that which is to do, we are to be very conservative now with that. Okay, where scripture does not speak, 
Then we have that little word, uh, adiaphora, which means it's not ordained, okay? That God has allowed some freedom. Uh, but remember, for us, that's always tempered. Uh, as Paul says, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial, correct? Okay, so you get that phrase, um, and, and I probably use it more often than I should, you're free in the gospel. Well, of course you're free in the gospel, but just because you're free in the gospel, does that mean that that's the best thing for you to do, or the best practice even in the church? Okay. So beyond that, we gladly follow the good example of past ages, provided that free Christian consciences are not enslaved by what God has neither commanded nor forbidden. Now here's the highlight. We modern Christians in particular have good reason to cherish the old churchly ways. Western culture has been uprooted and denuded by more than two centuries of relentless secularization. That's a weird spelling. To the extent uh, to which we see, with T.S. Eliot, the intimate and intricate connections between cult, religion, and culture, we shall not naively undervalue historic Christian customs as worthless cultural bric-a-brac from bygone ages. I can hear his distinctive voice in my head. I don't read it like he does, sorry. We shall see them rather as expressive of a certain churchly spirit and outlook and wear them gladly as badges of our humble continuity with the church of all ages. What's he saying here so far? What's he saying about church tradition? To keep it. Why? Yes. Yeah, it connects you. Think about your family. All of you probably have certain traditions or customs in your family. You know, we have something goofy that is expected to be at every one of our family get-togethers. It's named after my dad. His name is Jay, J-A-Y. And we have something called J-Corn. No idea what that is, do you? It's where you take a whole bunch of corn and a whole bunch of cream cheese and a whole bunch of sugar and butter and you put it in a crock pot. You've probably had it before. It's like sweet cream corn is what it is. It, it, a lot of people have it, but for whatever reason in our family, that's a customer tradition. And so whenever we have a family get-together, what do people complain about? Where's the J-corn, right? And the funny thing is like half the people don't even like it, right? But it's kind of a tradition or a custom. So why keep that tradition or custom alive? It, it honors my dad, right? He, he's getting older now, okay? Uh, and it brings back a lot of memories of different things. You probably have all sorts of different traditions or customs in your family or in your household, uh, and it connects you with your past. That's a good way to look at it, okay? Tradition, said G.K. Chesterton, this is the next paragraph, is the democracy of the dead. He was right, of course. Yet this way of putting the matter also suggests clear limits for tradition. The church, after all, is not a democracy, but a monarchy ruled graciously by Christ. His divine kingship sets the bounds which custom and precedent, however hallowed and venerable, may not transgress. Had he considered this side of things, the witty Mr. Chesterton would never have complained that the Reformation selectively snatched the scriptures from tradition's grand procession and then uh, uh, pitted the single feature against other equally authentic features of that same procession. 
Had he looked more closely at the great procession of historic Christendom, he would have seen Scripture alone as an affirmation, not a denial of genuine Christian tradition. Now, I've got a few pastors who the first place they go for sermons are actually G.K. Chesterton, okay, as opposed to Luther. G.K. Chesterton was a phenomenal biblicist in many regards, but, but he really had some issues with uh, Luther retaining some of the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church, okay? And a big surprise that, you know, an English gentleman, uh, Church of England, if you will, uh, would have issues with uh, Roman Catholic things, but, you know, that kind of comes through in some of his writings. Chemnitz, a diligent student of, Christ, of Christian antiquity, was able to fill many pages with citations from the church fathers. And let's just kind of read through those. Do you want to do you volunteer? Anybody want to read or you just want me to read to you? I'm trying to do class involvement. Monty's been helping me try and involve you more. Okay, St. Basil. Uh, and uh, he, di he died in 379, if you want the, the dates uh, for Basel. We do not think that it is right to make what is custom among them into a law and rule of the right doctrine. Therefore, let the divinely inspired scripture be made the judge by us, and on the side of those whose doctrines are found in agreement with the divine words, the vote of truth is cast. Quick summary. Scripture and tradition, how are they to be viewed? More by Scripture, but go ahead. Scripture trumps tradition, okay? But do we throw tradition out? No, okay? Well, let's go on. Let's see what Jerome said, uh, 420. Whatever has not its authority from the Scriptures is despised as easily as it is approved. What do we learn from Jerome? What could be the problem with tradition? Okay, say that one more time. Okay, so whatever has not its authority from Scripture, so if, if Scripture doesn't speak to it, Jerome is simply saying it can be easily approved, or it can be easily what? Okay, so it's not something that is going to be it's not going to have a firm foundation to it. It's probably a good way to maybe summarize what he's saying, okay? It's not something that is, it can go either way, right? So it can be a little wishy-washy. You got a better word than that? That's not technically an academic word. Let's look at Augustine. Next page. Let those things be removed from our midst, which we quote against each other, not from divine canon canonical books, but from elsewhere. Someone may perhaps ask, why do you want to remove those things from the midst? Because I do not want the Holy Church proved by human documents, but by divine oracles. So Augustine is saying what? If we're going to deal with matters of doctrine, per se, what do we have to make sure we have a foundation established? Or what, what should that foundation be? Scripture alone. Okay. Okay, so recognizing that there are, you know, oracles or things written by men is probably the best way to say it, uh, or things that people say they saw. Uh, Augustine, again, citing Galatians 1, verse 8, If an angel from heaven should preach to you anything besides what you have received in the scriptures of the law and of the gospel, let him be anathema, struck dead, if you will. 
okay? Uh, let them be separated from God's uh, good grace. Uh, St. John Chrysostom said this, let us not hold the opinion of the crowd, but let us inquire into the matters themselves. Some people come and ask me sometimes about, you know, some of the traditions that we have retained in the church or traditions that are unique, um, and sometimes just even the basics of what we believe as Lutheran Christians. And one of my first responses is, um, you know, what do you believe? You know, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, Joshua teaches us. What is it that you believe and why? That's a question you have to answer for yourself. Now, we arrive at that answer from Scripture, right? This is what faith is. This is these are what the sacraments are. Uh, this is what the church is. Uh, and so it all comes back to, uh, well, to God's Word, okay? For it is foolish, Chrysostom continues, that we who do not believe others in money matters, but count and reckon ourselves, should in matters of far greater importance simply follow the opinion of others, especially when we have the most exact scale, indicator, and rule, the assertion of the divine laws. So he's kind of pointing out that, you know, we'll spend a lot of time, huh, my goodness, look at the time we might put into, you know, preparing our taxes or managing our finances or understanding, you know, look at the research you might put into buying a car or a house, you know, and then simply ask the question in matters of faith, eternity, eternal life, how much time have you expended or do you expend on paying attention to those things? Is that a fair question? I think that's a fair question, right? I mean, we talk with our, our, our catechumens, our confirmation students about you know, how easy it is to sit down and, and watch, a, watch a movie on, you know, Netflix or whatever, hour and a half, two hours, goes by like that, right? You get started watching a series, and you've heard of binge watching, right? Just one episode, and you keep hitting, you know, it keep, pops up on the bottom, so you don't have to watch the, uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, intro credits, right? You can just keep going, and you can sit there and watch three, four of those in the space of two, three hours, and at some point, your butt starts cramping, and you got to get up and walk around, you know, and you think nothing of it, you know, but, but <laughs> how much time do we spend hearing God's Word? And so we try and connect the dots, you know, even coming to church, right? I mean, service gets to be, you know, I mean, on average, you know, we're, it's 75 minutes, but 75 minutes, is it really that long a time on a Sunday morning? I mean, when you think about it, compared to everything else that we devote our time to, you know? Uh, or 45 minutes of Bible study or whatever. I mean, you know, you, you start kind of comparing all that. And so it's, it's interesting to think about. Therefore, I beg you all that you give up what appeals to this one or to that one and that you address all these questions concerning these things to the Scriptures. Okay, next quote here. The Scripture alone principle necessarily implies both the sufficiency, you might want to underline that if you have the book, and the clarity of the Bible. So there's two words here, sufficiency and clarity. Sufficiency means that Scripture contains and teaches all, A-L-L, all the articles of the Christian faith, and is therefore able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So do we need anything that is not in Scripture? You don't. And that frustrates us sometime. sometime. You know, why, why didn't God tell us about this or that? Or why didn't he mandate and say, you know, absolutely do this, you know? Um, is it anywhere in Scripture, is it commanded for babies to be baptized? 
anywhere in Scripture. Can you give me a verse that says specifically that babies have to be baptized? No. Nor can you find me a passage that says that old people have to be baptized either, right? I mean, it says all nations, right? So all nations, everyone, all ages is included in that, okay? Uh, but does baptism save you? It does. I was thinking about this on the ride over. I had a conversation with someone. Oh, you crazy Lutherans, they said, you believe that baptism actually saves you. I said, well, I just believe what Scripture says. Right? So just as Noah and his family, eight souls in ark, were, were saved by means, or, or eight souls in all were saved by means of the ark, so baptism saves you. you know, not, not as removal of dirt, but as a pledge of a clean conscience to God, right? I can't stand with a clean conscience before God unless he has first done what? Saved me, rescued me, right? And baptism does that, okay? So, you know, it always kind of comes back to Scripture, okay? Very simple, okay? Questions on that? I just kind of threw that one out there. Oh, that was a good one. All right. um, so, sufficiency means Scripture contains and teaches us all the articles of the Christian faith. It is therefore able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible's, excuse me, clarity in turn means not that there are no unclear texts in it, but that all the articles of faith are set out in clear language, okay? So clarity means that, that the Bible itself is clear on what it's saying, okay? And you can write off to one side. I don't know if I can use this. Do I have a thing up here? Ah, you're not going to be able to see that. Uh, re re repeat after me. Una sensa. One sense. We believe that Scripture, uh, that there is one meaning, okay? One sense of, of that passage. How do we figure out what that passage is? Oh, who said it? Other Scripture. So this is where we, you know, we talk about our true biblical hermeneutic, Scripture interprets Scripture, Okay. We also can add one more Latin word on the, on the last that. You want to say some more Latin and feel really smart today? Una sensa literalis. One literal sense. Okay? We cling to that. Okay? Um, another summary of that basics of Scripture, which it claims for itself, uh, is also called pure doctrine. Okay? I mean, there's not many doctrines. There's only one doctrine. It's all united. It's all connected. Okay? All right. Some of you are probably going to email me because you, we'll, we'll talk more about that. But there's one literal sense, one meaning when you talk about Scripture. And keep in mind what Jesus said. The Jews did not like this. They didn't cling to this because they all followed different rabbis who had different teachings. Okay? Uh, so if, if you understand uh, Jews, you might have heard of a little book called the Talmud. Uh, teachings of the rabbis, okay? Um, and that's part of why you get some of the variation. And Jesus stood there in the tabernacle. He put his hands on all the scrolls that were there, which is what they would have accepted as the canon. And we understand that to be the 39 books of the Old Testament that they had approved. They did have other uh, writings that they would have studied. We would understand those to be apocryphal writings, okay? Which Luther actually encouraged to be read even in church from time to time. 
okay? Uh, it has some good meaning to it, but it's not Holy Scripture. And we don't do that in church because we don't want to confuse you with what God's Word is, right? But we'll study more of that sometime. But Jesus put his hands on all those books, and what did he say? These Scriptures testify to you. No, he didn't say that, did he? Right. So, so don't fall into that. That's a, that's a little bit of a... Uh, I, Beth Moore can play that card a little bit. So be careful, ladies, if you're doing Beth Moore Bible study. She falls off that wagon sometimes. Joel Osteen is big on this. Okay. Um, but these scriptures, Jesus says, testify to me. Okay. So I would submit to you that part of the one sense of scripture is that it's all about who? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, 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 so do that when you're reading and studying, okay? Any other comments there? Um, yeah, can I just keep reading through this? Because he's got some good stuff in that. Is that okay? I mean, it takes a little longer. I've got portions highlighted here. but uh, So in recent times, let's read Psalm 119 first. first. Here we go. You're, let's read that one. You should have this one memorized anyway. Here we go. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. So a lamp needing light from somewhere else wouldn't amount to much of a lamp, would it? So you see where the light comes from. It's not from within. It's not intranose. It's always extranose. Okay? And the light, of course, is, is Christ, okay? who is the Logos, both man, God, and the flesh, and the Word. Now, in recent times, discussion has focused more on the clarity of Scripture than on its sufficiency. It's been part of the challenge that we've had in our generation. The Second Vatican Council, and there's your dates for it, 62 to 65, moderated the language of Rome's tradition principle while advancing its claims in subtler form. The Council rejected the document prepared by the Vatican's Theological Commission. How many of you have studied any part of the Second Vatican Council? I haven't really just until the last few years um, uh, because it's interesting to see how much of what they decided we just kind of adopted into the Lutheran church, okay? I mean, really, and which is, is really kind of ironic, <laughs> right? <laughs> that we're, we're, we're Lutherans who, you know, still consider ourselves... Uh, you know, at odds with the Roman church on many things, but yet a lot of their traditions and customs and practices we've just adopted wholeheartedly into the church. And some of it has been just for the sake of looking like everybody else, right? Um, you know, so when I was a little kid, you know, my parents couldn't afford, you know, a, a, a pair and Nikes were just kind of coming out, but, you know, those, those were popular. Adidas was around then. We could never afford those. You know, mom would take us to Payless Shoe Store, and instead of three stripes on my shoe, I had four or five stripes, right? Um, and so as a kid, you're always kind of, you know, thinking that, that you're, you're different, but you, you, you so desperately want to fit in, right? And you, you do anything, you know, to get that. And so I remember um, uh, uh, selling, we had, we had chickens, we lived on a, on a, on a farm, and I would sell uh, chicken eggs, every, uh, you know, eggs, <laughs> every Sunday, you know, like a dollar a dozen, which is a pretty good deal nowadays, right, for, uh, uh, for eggs, but people, I mean, people pay a dollar back then for them, and um, I saved my money and saved my money, you know what I bought? I saved up like uh, $20, $20, $25 over the course of like a month. Do you ever remember a members-only jacket? 
oh yeah, it's like a windbreaker, and it's got the little loop-de-loop snap that kind of comes up, and it's got the short kind of half collar, you know, kind of the type of one that uh, John Mike, uh, John Michael uh, Vincent from Airwolf, who died this week, you know, used to wear. You got the really cool kind of true neck collar, and it's got the squared shoulders, which was the time back then. And I got my members-only jacket, and I was so excited, right? Because I was now going to be one of the in crowd. Wanted to fit in so badly. And so we have to be careful sometimes as a church that we don't expend all of our time and energy and effort just to try and look like other Christians, okay? And, and to realize that our identity is not tied up in, in how we might fit in with other Christians, but our identity is tied up in, 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 in who we are, right? And so we need to make sure we don't become too vain in that way, like I did when I was little, Okay? I still wish I had that jacket. I wouldn't fit in it, but it'd be like, cool. <laughs> Coming back, you know. Okay. All right. Peg leg jeans for us. We used to have to roll them. Some of you guys now, you've got these peg leg pants that are coming back, and we used to actually roll and cuff them. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> I want to talk about fashion choices. Um, okay. So where am I at? Oh, please. Scripture introduced. Oh, here we go. Yeah, yeah, this is important. So the council rejected the document prepared by the Vatican's Theological Commission. So their own Theological Commission actually brought forward, you might say, uh, a resolution, you know, to the voters, okay? And they totally rejected it, okay? So if you've ever, you know, served as a delegate, either at a convention, you know, district or national, or if you've got something that you bring before the church council here and the voters, and you did all this work ahead of time, and I've seen this happen before, uh, and then it just, they totally, it just, people don't like it. That's what happened here, okay? Now, what they proposed was, was to take the old pattern of Scripture and tradition, put your two hands up, Scripture and tradition, so those are the two sources of revelation, and that they would run side by side. So just pretend you're guiding an air, aircraft into its, uh, you know, hangar thingy, okay, the walkway. All right, so they were proposing that Scripture and tradition, side by side, but separate, would now move us forward as the church as a whole. This was rejected, okay? And, and, and let's hear what, what Professor Marquardt explains what they decided. Instead, the council stressed tradition as the ongoing interpretation of the one biblical text by the church's teaching, teaching office, culminating, of course, in the papacy. So what happened? What happened? What got put above the other? Tradition, tradition, right? So tradition then, and the Vatican II, was pushed even further than what it had been in the past. Okay? Um, now, as I read some of our own Missouri Synod theologians who were alive at that time, and they were, they were involved in the academic circles, this was really disappointing for some of them. Because one of the hopes has always been, and we should want to have a united church, but obviously we can't stand together when there's, when there's differences, right? Uh, so, you know, we're one loaf of bread, Paul says, and, and if you've got something against your brother, don't go to the altar, right? So we're, 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 we're still separate, we're still, the Reformation still continues. Um, and so they now went almost the opposite way and emphasized not only tradition, but also the office of the papacy. Okay. This approach appeals to common sense, 
um, quote, how would we interpret the Constitution if there was no Supreme Court? Okay, now, I'm, not, I'm not saying we would necessarily agree with that, but that would be the argument of common sense, that you have to have one particular body, organization, that's going to hold the other in check, right? So we do agree constitutionally that we have checks and balances. That's why we got the three branches of government, correct? And so now what, what they're saying, appealing to common sense, is, is, is now who's going to hold who in check? Who's going to hold the church in check? The Pope. Now maybe they need to turn that around. But that's why so much emphasis the last 50, 60 years, and, and this really impacts the church. So uh, the last pope, I, I get them all confused, I'm sorry. Pope John Paul II, is that correct? He, what's that? Well, no, that's the current one. <sighs> anyway, <laughs> so John... Okay, I thought it was John Paul that had the theology of the body. Okay, there you go. So, so he did a lot of work on the theology of the body, which was really good for life issues, especially, um, you know, through at least my lifetime, some of the emphasis on that. Uh, and that was what he was kind of known for. So when the Pope would publish an encyclical uh, or there would be um, other uh, writings, it, it would always come through the, through the Pope. Right? You wouldn't hear about it coming through the commission. Now, that, in the past, that wasn't always the case. And so you definitely have seen a change the last 50 or 60 years on everything coming through the papal office. Any comments on that? Okay, can you name off the three popes before those? Okay. I would have been really impressed if you could do that. All right. Um, now, the case was memorably put to the present writer by an Italian lawyer during the days of Vatican II. Marquardt you know, lived through this. This lawyer had doctorates in law, economics, and medicine. He was traveling from Rome to Finland to adjudicate a border dispute with the Soviet Union on behalf of the United Nations organization. That would have been a fun conversation to be a fly on the wall. Okay? Um, he claimed that, he once, that once he had made his findings, the matter would... Be, the matter would be settled since he was the world expert on the particular point at issue. Now, reasoned the lawyer, just as others had to accept his expertise, so he in turn had to accept theirs concerning the fields in which he himself was not an expert, for instance, religion. In this field, the lawyer thought, only the Vatican had credibility. Do you realize, he asked, that there are priests in Rome who have spent their lives studying Marxism and who know more about it than any Marxist? The same is true of other vital branches of knowledge. When the Pope, therefore, decides something on this sort of advice, who am I to question the world's top expertise in religion? Now, Marquardt makes a valid point here. And I've met a lot of people over the years who, uh, they just do what their pastor said or told them to do. He's an expert, after all. Right? Hey, you know, he's, he's got all these years of study under his belt. And I've met a lot of Roman Catholics that way too. Who am I to question what the Pope would say? And that's a legitimate question, is it not? Anybody want to debate that? Okay. So Marquardt kind of poses an interesting question here that he's going to go on to answer. And that's kind of why I wanted to read this to you. Because, you know, where then is the role and authority of 
Scripture. Then, Scripture then is subservient to who? To whoever the expert is, or to their field of knowledge. Okay? Uh, Lutherans can fall into this boat too. Um, you know, Luther, <laughs> Luther changed a lot during his time. If you go in and read any of our Luther works, and you read stuff from 1519, 1520, and you read something he wrote in 1535, 1540, there's times where he says some things that are almost exactly opposite over the course of 15 to 20 years, right? So the theologian will say, you know, well, which Luther? Early Luther? Middle Luther? Late Luther? And so, you know, when we debate and, debate and you know, write academic papers and that sort of thing, that, that'll be kind of one of the questions. Oh, that's early Luther. Oh, yeah. Early Luther didn't understand fill in the blank, right? Or you get to later Luther. Well, later Luther is old and, uh, and he's in pain and he doesn't have any patience anymore for the Turks or the Jews, right? And he cusses more in his writing and he's obviously drinking more beer. Uh, his patience is worn thin. You know, so you, you, get, you get some of that. Okay. 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 A mental experiment will help to answer this question. Casting our minds back 2,000 years to ancient Palestine, we imagine that we are trying to resolve for ourselves the puzzle of Jesus of Nazareth. Is he genuine or is he a, a fraud? Naturally, not being experts in religion, we consult with those who are. We ask the temple authorities in Jerusalem, would we have discovered the truth in this way? What do you think? The temple authorities. Okay. Christ is, after all, Matthew 21, the stone the builders rejected. Experts, as Chesterton pointed out, are very useful in technical matters. Yet when it is a question of life or death, we ask 12 ordinary men and women to decide. That's interesting, isn't it? When you think about how our, uh, we are, our Constitution is set up, uh, our laws, the experts must convince a jury of ordinary people. If they can't, they lose their case. So the great issues of life and death are fundamentally simple and must be faced by every human being. And here you'll see the highlight, I think, up on the screen. How much more in matters of spiritual life? And here's probably the quote for you. Conscience cannot be delegated. And I would submit to you, if there's one thing you take from this Bible study for today, it would be that. Conscience cannot be delegated. And so Luther, when he's being questioned about his writings, what does he say about his conscience when they ask him to recant? It is neither good nor right to go against conscience. Now, real quickly, what is conscience from Scripture? Everyone has one. Conscience is the law of God written on your heart. Okay? That's what we would refer to as the natural knowledge of God. Everybody's got it. Okay? Now, it's not enough, obviously, for you to be saved or come to God and read the explanation of the third article of the Creed if you're confused about that. Okay? I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, said the Savior, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to... Which is why you and I must become like a little child. 
Okay? The issue is clear and simple, Marquot continues. Christ says, watch out for false prophets. What does this involve? So Jesus says that. Who's he saying this to? Watch out to false prophets. All Christians. All Christians. You see here, Christ does not give the judgment to prophets and teachers, but to pupils or sheep. For how could one beware of false prophets if one did not consider and judge their teaching? If the sheep were not supposed to flee from the wolves until the wolves, uh, through their Christian counsel and public verdict, commanded them to flee, then the shepherd, the sheepfold, would soon be empty. And the shepherd would within one day find neither milk nor cheese, butter, wool, meat, nor even a hoof. Not only the whole flock of sheep, but also every single sheep by itself has the right and power to flee from the wolves as best it can, as also it does. Uh, St. John 10, 5, they will run away from him. Okay, so let's close here. If every sheep is entitled to its own opinion, though, will there not be total chaos? And that's what some people accuse of us in the Lutheran Church after leaving the Roman Catholic Church. And why bother with shepherds if the sheep themselves decide everything? That's what a lot of Protestants have done. Then there's no need for the pastoral office. Then everybody's a pastor, right? Put a stole on everybody. Put an ordination stole on every kid when they're confirmed because they're, they're pastors. Okay? And some churches teach and believe that. Okay? Um, here one must distinguish sharply between two sound alikes. One is private judgment and the other is private interpretation. Okay? And we're going to talk more about that next week. I'm going to leave you hanging there because we're out of time. Quick questions. The last thing I will tell you is this. You have the Word of God. The Word of God has been given to you. It's very near to you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That's part of your confession of faith. Okay? And we believe that that Word as itself is the sole rule, norm, source, and judge of all things. Okay? And while we certainly still have pastors and we still have church structure and that sort of thing, we have what we need in the Word of God, and so we turn there. Okay? And we do that as well to learn, uh, to be aware, and to flee from things that are false one way or the other. Okay? Come next week with some more questions about that, because that kind of opens up a little bit of a Pandora's box on a few things, uh, but it's an important part to cover. Okay. Anything? Bueller? Bueller? Nothing? Monty? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Let's stand and close with the Lord's Prayer. Hope you learned a little something today. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Peace be with you. Amen.